Hello, everyone. Welcome to Collisions YYC Current and Critical. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. Thank you for joining me today for another good old-fashioned chat. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with Sate Corporate Training. A huge thank you to Craig Hass and his team for their ongoing support of the Collisions YYC podcast. 40% of people globally are considering leaving their employer before the end of the year, according to a 2021 survey conducted by Microsoft. Whether you're a senior leader, a manager, or an individual contributor, hearing that stat for the first time, it's going to get your attention. For me, aside from freaking me out a little bit, the first question I had to ask myself is why? Well, let's be honest. It's been 18 months of the pandemic, and many of us are left unfulfilled and looking for change. This may be tied to lack of perceived advancement in your careers over the past year, or by organizations being in survival mode versus growth mode, or simply being, quote unquote, locked in our houses for the last 18 months. We're looking for something different, and we're look, more importantly, we're looking for change. No matter what the reason, I think we're about to turn the corner to what is going to be the greatest economic opportunity of the past century. Are we ready? Since its founding in our province over 100 years ago, SAIT has been at the leading edge of what our citizens and companies need to be competitive locally and on the global stage. To find out more what they can do for you as an individual or as an organization, check them out at sait.ca slash corporate training, or better yet, open up your email and contact Craig Hess directly, craig.hess, at sait.ca. He'd love to chat with you, walk you through your needs, and more importantly, how they can help. Hello and a warm collisions YYC, a returning YYC guest. Welcome to Mr. Matthew Wilson. How are you, Matt? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. Oh man, thanks for coming back on the show. And you, you, you thanks for thanks for having the date locked down. I was scrolling through my list as we were chatting, but uh, a lot has changed since you and I first sat down to chat. You said October 2020 when you and I first. Uh, it, it feels like that's a few worlds ago now, doesn't it? <laughs> I know it's crazy. Like, look how far we've come in just uh, 10 months here. The world is changing. Things are opening back up and people are starting to travel again. It's exciting times. Yes. Have you, uh, you know, not, not to dive down on the personal road, but have you booked any cool trips yet? Or like, I, I find that that's the question that's coming up very frequently now as we get together in restaurants or on patios, where are you going and where, where, where are you going and where are you going to go? <laughs> Uh, yeah, nothing, nothing too crazy yet. Um, I think, you know, like last summer I spent a lot of time traveling around Alberta and quite honestly, it was great. I mean, without the international tourists, I understand, you know, the, the travel operators, it's tough for them, but I mean, if you're a local, you want to travel around your own backyard. I mean, there's no crowds, you know, you can uh, get into restaurants easily if you're in Banff, for example. So I think it's a great time to just explore the backyard. Yes. I think a lot of people did some local, the stuff you normally only do when someone comes to visit, right? Those kind of things. (laughs) Oh, for sure. Yeah. We went down to Waterton last summer and, you know, the trailer park, which is normally full in July, was totally empty. So it really made a difference just in terms of, you know, crowds and, and everything. It was quite enjoyable. If anyone's listening and you haven't been down to Waterton, that's a gem of, that's an interesting little spot. Like, I don't know if it feels a little bit like it's in this little like land that time forgot and the, the, the quirky little diner where you can get an espresso. Like, I, yeah, I was a big fan. I went down there the first time a couple of years ago. I loved it down there. It's pretty quirky. It's awesome. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's spectacular. One of my favorite spots. Ah, very cool. Yeah, no, Alberta's got yes. Taking taking the time, we fly all over the world. We don't always exp- we don't always take the time to explore our own backyards. I told I totally agree. Matt, you're the founder and managing director at Allied Venture Partners. So for anyone who ha- didn't have the opportunity to uh, tune into our episode before, let's kind of set the stage. Tell us a little about about Allied Venture Partners, and we'll dive into this. What is turning out to be a very big topic around investing. Um, startups, the ecosystem, the real financial side of, from both the investor side to the business side of what we need to really build this new ecosystem and this this new Alberta we're all excited about. Yeah, a uh, little bit of a quick background on myself. So I'm a former entrepreneur operator, uh, basically spent my 20s in Toronto, uh, built and, and grew a CPG company there. And then 
moved out to Calgary in 2012 after we had exited the business and just started doing some angel investing as a way to stay connected to the startup community. Um, throughout the years, started getting more and more experience from that, uh, started scouting for a couple different VCs and syndicate leads. And then my eventual goal was to launch my own angel syndicate, which uh, we did last year. So Allied Venture Partners, we launched officially in October, which was around the time that we had initially talked last time. And yep. yeah, it's been an exciting, uh, what, eight months now. It's been, uh, it's been, uh, it's been good. We, we just closed uh, our sixth deal of the year. And uh, we've got over 600 investors now, part of the network, and we've put over a million dollars to work. So it's been uh, it's been an exciting year so far, to say the least. And if I remember correctly, when you guys launched, did you have about like in the did you have about 70, 74 is the number that comes to mind. I don't know why that's so specific that you had. Like, how many investors did you guys have when you launched versus the 600 you have now? Like, kind of what's been the growth curve on that? Yeah, we had just under 100. So it was mostly just people that I had met throughout the years and through my personal network. So it was a nice little base to start with. But since we started putting out deals and then word of mouth spread and other investors were, were telling their friends and it's just it's really grown like we, we we've been getting, you know, I want to say like a dozen new investors a week, it seems signing up to join the oh, syndicate. Wow. So it's been it's been quite quite the, the growth trajectory. It's it's exciting. That's an, oh, so, so many questions. So let's let's pivot back to the six deals. So to give some context, and part of what I what I'm trying to do with this series of shows is also give people from the outside a really understanding of all the different types of investing in vehicles and you know the venture capital. And we've all watched too many movies, so we get that picture in our minds. And you know, as I've been talking to a, a few individuals that play in the space, there's a lot of slivers of different ways to approach this. So maybe just if you want to talk about or how how much detail, like with those six deals that you got into, uh, like how much per deal. What does that look like just to really break it down a little bit? Yeah, so we invest predominantly at the seed to series A stage. So so okay. relatively early. Um, we do look for companies in the software technology space. So we're not entirely across the board. Um, we tend to avoid stuff like biotech or health tech just because it's not my area of expertise. Okay. But uh, we'll look for companies that, you know, they're, they're post-product. They've got some kind of MVP in market. And, you know, they've started generating some initial revenue and maybe that's just a few thousand dollars a month, but at least they've sort of got something out there. They've been able to bootstrap to this point and now they're looking for some additional capital to really ramp things up. So we like to come in uh, with a typical check size anywhere from 100 to 250,000 in that range okay. and really help work with the company and get them, you know, if it's a seed company, get them to that series A stage or if it's a series A company, really, you know, help them scale and get to that next level. So um, that's sort of the area that we like to operate in, C to Series A. Okay. And typically, would, what would be, do you guys base it on, you said maybe revenue, maybe small amounts, but they've got something viable. They've got some customers that there's there's some movement happening. We're not just in the, in the necessarily in the idea phase. What would be, do you guys base it on around any kind of, eval and I know it's very, can be challenging to evaluate a company at that level, but what would be the value of the companies that you would invest in? Are they kind of sub 10, three to five? Like, is there, is there kind of a range that that matches up with that profile? Yeah, we'll, we'll be looking like for a seed stage company, for example. I mean, they're typically raising, you know, maybe five hundred, five hundred thousand dollars on a, okay. you know, five five million dollar valuation, five to ten, sort of sub ten. Um, we can talk about a little bit further. I know that valuations have got a bit crazy because of COVID <laughs> over the last year, but uh, yeah, we're looking in that range. And then if it's a Series A, for example, they're probably raising between one to three million on anywhere from a, you know a fifteen to a twenty five million valuation, sort of in that range. Okay. So, so you're really covering a big breadth of company. Like that's a big difference between somebody who's at a five to 10 million valuation or even a 15 to 20. That's a significant shift. 
is is it mean that they're they've come are much further down the path, or does it also sometimes mean that the sector they're playing in or the opportunity that lays in front of them is contributing to that evaluation? Like you said, there's external there's extenuating factors that are maybe contributing to evaluations that kind of throw the 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 formula a little bit out of whack. Mm. Yeah, definitely a bit of both. I mean, you know, for for a, like a Series A round, for example, the company's probably doing you know you know fifty to one hundred thousand dollars a month, so they're really starting to to ramp up and and okay. get that revenue engine running. Um, but uh, yeah, no, like we'll, uh, we'll we'll sort of we've looked at companies, we've invested in companies as low as a four million dollar valuation all the way up to twenty five million dollar valuation. So okay. um, it, it really depends on the industry as well and the potential of the industry. So if it's uh, like over the last year, there's been, I'm sure you've seen the headlines, there's been a ton of interest in, in blockchain and crypto, for example. So uh, we've seen valuations you, you get, you, 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 yeah. yeah, we've seen valuations get, so, yeah, yeah, like, you, you can't avoid it. It's, you're getting hit with an article like multiple times a day. Oh yeah, for sure. So, I mean, investors seem to be bidding up those deals and overpaying for those deals left and right. And, uh, but then there's other companies like a, like an enterprise SaaS company, for example, that's, you know, doing something incredibly well and they have a really strong value proposition and a strong customer base. But, you know, maybe maybe investors sort of overlook that or they don't quite see the potential there. And that's sort of the deals that we look for is sort of those diamonds in the rough that, that everyone everyone's focusing on, on crypto or, or whatever right now. We want to find what everyone else is avoiding or forgetting to look at and, and find those opportunities. And that's where I think, you know, the, the real opportunities lie. Interesting. Go, yeah, go where the competition isn't kind of my, kind of mindset. Uh, when it comes to that kind of deal flow, is it just thinking about there's so many businesses out there looking for the funding, but there's a significant amount of investors looking for opportunity and keeping that coming in. Like, how's that relationship? Like, is it, are there lots, is there mechanisms in place or is it a nonstop? Like how many, how many emails are you screening on a daily basis of people either reaching out or telling you, you should go check something out. Just really understanding how you keep that ball rolling consistently. Cause you need to be seeing a lot of opportunities to like, how many did you see, uh, how, you know, roughly to, to land with six, how many came across your desk that didn't, that didn't make it? Like what's the, what's the ratio? Oh, uh, hundreds at least. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that. I, I've kind of like deal flow is really the holy grail of the industry, right? You have to have good quality deal flow if, if you want to get in front of those those uh, good investment opportunities. But so I've kind of built sort of a multi-prong approach. So on our website, for example, we've got an application form where startups can sort of fill out some high level information about the company and apply that way. And then also because the investor network is getting so big now with over 600 people, we're starting to see a lot of inbound deal flow coming from them. And it's fantastic mm, because okay. it's like I have 600 plus scouts out <laughs> in the market and they're dispersed, you know, across North America. We have people in Australia, the UK, Hong Kong. So it's really this global network of, of angels, VCs, other tech entrepreneurs. So, you know, they're introducing me to their friends or people that they know that are starting tech companies. So we're really starting to see a lot more inbound deal flow from the network itself. Mm. So, yeah, no, like just back to your previous point, I mean, you know, we'll get, you know, dozens of potential opportunities or pitch decks on a weekly basis. And then it just comes down to sort of filtering and, uh, and, and looking for those opportunities that really align with our thesis. Any advice or any, you know, if, if someone's listening that's wanting to put that deck together, and I guess this is a this is a multi million dollar question. Any any key things that you look for, like you know, you're the guy who's now going to be sitting there saying yes or no, like this is going to end up on the right pile or the left pile of the desk, kind of thing, almost like resume screening, and you probably have ability to do it fairly quickly. What are some of the things that jump out for you? Like what's what's on your what's on your checklist? 
Yeah, I would say one of the biggest mistakes I commonly see is, you know, pitch decks that are 20, 30 or 40 slides long. And it's it's just uh, it's too much. Right. Like, don't put your entire business plan in a pitch deck. Pitch deck is kind of like a movie trailer. Right. It should be, you know, 10 <laughs> to 15 slides, high level overview. Basically, what you want to do is get the investor is interested enough for a follow up. Right. That's the whole point of a pitch deck is just to get to that next meeting or that next call. So. The, the, you know, you don't have to go in and don't have your slides too text heavy. Like if you just go in and write paragraph after paragraph, just keep it simple, high level overview, cover the problem, the solution, define what your company does. Maybe talk about, you know, your your projections for the next year, some of the technology you've built and uh, what customers are saying, stuff like that. But I mean, you can you can Google there's there's a great article actually by Guy Kawasaki who talks about the, the 10 fundamental slides of a pitch deck. And if you just Google that, that'll pop up. And that's a great template just to follow and really just keep it simple. Keep it keep it direct and to the point, because another thing, too, is investors, you know, they, they want to see, you know, how concise and how effectively you can communicate without you know going down a, a 30 minute rabbit hole on one topic. So, you know, keep it concise, high level and, and just just enough to pique their interest to, to get the next call or the next meeting. From your experience, from the, the the ten slide deck that does the heavy that does the job, what's the typical timeline? Is there a kind of a range where you look at from the opportunity to go, yep, this is interesting. We're going to go to the next step to actually getting funding. Is that a fairly you know due diligence can vary based on the company or how well prepared they are to kind of share that information with you? But is there a typical timeline that you see from the hey, you know what, I think we got something here to actually getting a deal done? Yeah, so. As a former founder myself, like the the fundraising process is incredibly time consuming. You pretty much have to take time off from running the company to go out and raise raise rounds, right? So we try and make it as quickly as possible. So our process our process time, I tell founders, is we aim for four weeks or less from oh, wow. you know, okay. initial initial deck, initial meeting. Like we'll move quickly. Like we'll know within the first you know the first twenty minutes of meeting with a company or going through the deck whether or not this is something that's a potential fit for us. And then from there, yeah, we'll try and move quickly. I don't want to waste their time. Obviously, they're they're pitching a ton of other people, so um, I'm going to let them know early on in the process. And then, you know, as quickly as they can get their stuff to us, we can start going through it. So typically, they'll send us a data room, and 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 in there, you've got everything from you know incorporation documents to to your financial projections and and maybe your IP assignments and some other key things. But uh, we'll try and make a decision within you know two weeks or so if we can. And I mean, at the seed stage, especially, I mean, there's not a, there's not, you know, weeks and weeks of diligence that you need to do. Uh, there's just, there's just not because the company hasn't been around for many years. There's not, you know, 20 quarters of financial statements to go through and all this. And yeah, you want to talk to customers and see what people are saying, but it really shouldn't take, you know, months and months. Um, I know some, some VC firms, they have their process, which might be a little bit longer, but we aim for, for four weeks or less from initial meeting to close. I really appreciate what you said about, you know, you've been on the other side and really respecting how much time and energy it takes and giving somebody a, a yes, no sooner rather than later. Just to, you know, I, I do appreciate the, the respect that comes out of that statement <laughs> versus dragging somebody along oh, for, for sure. months. <laughs> yeah. And that's the last thing you want to do to a founder, right? Because it's, it's such a laborious task to go out there and, and really to land, if you got a round coming together of three to five investors, that means you've probably had a hundred meetings. I mean, just wow, because okay. that's how the numbers work out. So, I mean, if you can save them time, then, then that's, that's the way to go. Is there any, just thinking about as, as, as ecosystems mature and maybe as the Canadian market shifts and, and, and we, we get farther down the path, you know, there's, I've talked to lots of people and they're like, well, yeah, we're probably five, eight years behind the U S different market. 
is there any an opportunity or do you see a world where it gets like 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 dating the algorithm knows who to put you in front of to, instead of having to 100 presentations to get down to three or four that feels like there isn't a lot of clarity there why else would you have to do that many as almost a trial and error versus being able to have it and maybe it's just a, a factor of time where you really start to understand as a startup like well if I'm this kind of a business that's looking for this kind of funding with this structure then boom I can go to the 20 people that are the most likely to fund that where it sounds like now it's a little bit of a I don't want to say spray and pray but 100 to 3 sounds like a spray and pray strategy mm -hmm. yeah um it's interesting actually because um start alberta they recently launched their new updated database of investors and companies so i don't know if you saw there was a, a post on linkedin and they, they did a press release about it last week but uh, they built this world-class database where you can go in now and search for investors based on their investment criteria the types of companies uh, they look okay. for, their check size yeah, and it's just a fantastic resource because, like you said, I mean, if you don't know who to talk to or who to target, then it's just you know a bit of a crapshoot, and you're kind of throwing spaghetti against the wall to see what <laughs> sticks. But um, the other the great thing is too, most most VC firms or you know investment firms will have it listed on their website, sort of what stages they invest in, the verticals they invest in. Uh, you know, so so do some research on the VC. Uh, look at their thesis, the types of stuff uh, that they invest in and look at, you know, they should have their maybe their portfolio listed on there as well. And you can see the types of companies that they've invested in before. So if they have something similar, similar industry, similar stage fit, vertical fit, then it's probably worth reaching out. But don't just go knocking on every VC in the neighborhood uh, <laughs> because you're going to get a lot of no's and you're going to waste a lot of time if it's not a fit for them. Yeah, back to just the time and the opportunity cost and the energy for everybody involved. And that's no kidding. Uh, talking about the, the deal structures themselves, when these things come together, I've had a few guests on and just over the past year, people have mentioned like, ah, you know, the Canadian ecosystem, we've got a problem. We're, we, we don't, those first couple deals aren't right. It kind of poorly sets up the company for growth. It, 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 it almost hamstrings them for future rounds. Anything, any point of view from your perspective in terms of like how those deals get structured right off the bat? And do you see any trends in the Canadian market or where we need to improve on that because it is actually kind of crippling companies for down the road or even your own journey? What kind of, what vehicles are, how do you guys look at that, that initial deal structure to make sure that everybody is set up for all the future ones that, to come? Yeah, so so for us uh, specifically, so we don't currently lead rounds. Uh, we like to participate alongside other investors as well. Okay. We're just not large enough to be leading rounds quite just yet. But I mean, that's often the pushback that a lot of founders will see. It's like they'll go out, they'll pitch a bunch of investors and they'll tell them, hey, like, come back when you've got a lead. And finding that lead domino is really one of the hardest things to do. But once you find them, the rest of the round really comes together and moves quickly. So uh, that's probably the largest challenge. And then you know, some advice that I would say to, to entrepreneurs specifically in this time age is we've seen evaluations just get absolutely crazy over the last uh, 12 months or so with all the, the trillions of dollars that governments have been pumping into the market. So don't set yourself up for failure down the road. Like don't go out and raise, you know, a $25 million valuation seed round, because if you don't hit those milestones and grow into that valuation over the next 12 to 18 months, the last thing you want to do is have to go out where your next round and tell investors, you know, it's going to be a flat or a down round because that's just really going to be a, a total confidence suck. Uh, it's going to be demoralizing to the team. And those investors who invested in the first round, they it's not not their obligation to float the company and keep the company alive. Right. They might turn the tap off and say, listen, we're not going to we're not going to reinvest. You know, uh, you're on your own. So um, stay realistic about the valuation. Don't try and get too far ahead of yourself. Because it can really negatively impact you down the road when you're trying to raise that next round. 
that feels like a really easy trap that you could fall into and not even realize you're stepping into it for sure. Cause optimism and Hey, we all see the headlines and, and you know, that's the sexy, the big evaluation is, is kind of the, 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 the sexy headline that you see all the time. And as a founder, uh, that's yeah, no, I could, I could really see where you'd have to have a lot of discipline of knowing when, to, when, to, like a lot of things in life, you're defined by what you say no to, not what you say yes to. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's, it's like you say, it's tempting to, you know, take the money and get the higher valuation. And then, you know, you feel great, you know, instead of a, you know, a $10 million company, you know, you've been valued at, a, let's say $25 million company, but you know, the goal of building the business is not to raise at a higher valuation, right? The goal is to, to delight and retain customers and continue growing revenue. So, uh, I feel like a lot of a lot of founders they can get caught up in the whole you know the sex appeal of raising at higher valuations and you know that's it's great but it's not something that should be the primary focus right it, it's an, it's a trap that can be easily followed into um, if you're not careful. Yeah, no, I'm sure it's yeah, and is that also just a factor of the, the where we're at and you know kind of just the overall kind of macroeconomic cycle like you said just coming out of the last 12 months of money being flowing and things like that or is this just a prevalent problem that kind of ebbs and flows in 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 this world no matter no matter what there's always something that that's contributing yeah so i mean i think to understand it if we if we turn back the clock to about a year ago so when covid first hit we saw this massive liquidity squeeze so everyone in every market private and public was just sort of running for the exits and looking looking to move to cash and even historic safe havens like gold for example crashed like people didn't even want to buy gold so we saw this massive liquidity squeeze and i think as the summer sort of progressed and people realized listen the world's not ending it's a pandemic pandemics don't last forever we are going to get through this and then coupled with all the the stimulus money that that was pumped into to economies from governments around the world then we started to see the market instantly go from liquidity squeeze to liquidity rich and there was just so much capital floating around and you know you you layer on top of that the past 10 years or so of trends in the venture capital for example where companies have stayed private longer so we started to see a lot of these you know larger funds like the tiger globals of the world and these other hedge funds and private equity guys coming in at, at the later stage of private companies and basically trying to arbitrage between the last round of, of private funding, flipping it into the public markets, right? Because they're going to make a nice little, you know, two to three X on that. And and I think, you know, direct listings and SPACs has certainly played, played into that a lot. It's made it a lot easier for these guys to come in and overpay at the later rounds and then arbitrage into the uh, public markets. But as a result, we've seen this ripple effect all the way up market as early as, as Series A and Seed. So the big guys sort of muscle okay. out the guys who are normally playing at that stage. So now they have to go more up market and they're overpaying. So then they're out muscling the Series B and C guys. So the Series B and C guys now are going to the Series A and Seed <laughs> rounds and they're overpaying. So everyone is now kind of overpaying and pumping up valuations all the way back down the line. And when you look <laughs> at some of the VC firms that would historically play at the Series B and Series C stage, we're now seeing them come in and overpay at the Series A stage, for example. But, you know, it's not necessarily even a vote of confidence in the company. They're just basically buying an option to see the next round. So uh, it's it's not that they think this is the greatest thing. This is the next Uber. They just want a seat at the table for the next B or C round and be able to increase their investment from there. So it's really had this ripple effect all the way up the market. And I think it's made it a, a lot trickier for people who normally play at the seed to Series A stage. Okay. To stay focused and not get wrapped up in the hype. And, and that's something that I've, I've really tried to maintain discipline with. And like we talked about earlier, not chase those hot, hyped up deals, you know, try and look where everyone else isn't and, and get those diamonds in the rough. 
I appreciate that. And it, are we like, like you talked about the liquidity squeeze to all of a sudden an abundance of liquidity that happened pretty quick. Do you see this course correcting in, in, in the future or are we kind of in the middle of kind of running this, this like latest phase of this journey out? I think so. Yeah, it's definitely a bit frothy, a bit of a bubble right now. It, it, I don't think it's going to last forever. And that's the thing. Like, we're seeing a ton of money still going into markets, but who knows what's going to happen six to 12 months from now, where markets are going to be. And, you know, uh, it, it, there's now talk about interest rates potentially going up and inflation. So, yeah, no, I don't think it's it's going to last. I think valuations are going to sort of retreat back to their to their normal level over the next uh, year to two years. But um, as of right now, yeah, I just I, I tell investors all the time, like, don't 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 get caught up in the hype. And and, uh, you know, just because a, a big VC firm like a Sequoia, for example, is investing in this round doesn't necessarily mean that they're taking this company all the way to, to IPO. I mean, they might just be buying a call option to see the next round. So you don't know what everyone else's sort of mentality is and their reasoning is. So just be careful and, uh, you know, try and try and keep a level head. To me, listening to you talk about you know overvaluating that that sounds like that creates an a, a, an unfortunate kind of blowback a couple of years from now when evaluations comes back down to earth and those companies that were it's like buying on the bubble right I'm just like bringing it back to real estate something most of us understand you bought at that peak and then three years from now everything corrects and you're upside down by x x y z or you know I'm assuming that's the same kind of phenomenon that's going to happen here. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And just going back to my point from earlier, I mean, if the company, you know, gets that big valuation, but they don't grow into it or they don't hit their milestones, then yeah, that next round is going to be a flat or a down round. And and that could make or break the company, right? Because no, no investor is really going to want to invest in a down round. I mean, you know, they want to invest in companies that are growing and, and constantly, constantly going up, right? So it just, you know, you want to set yourself up for success and, and, and you know, not have your head in the clouds early on because it can hurt you down the road. Yes, no kidding. Don't, don't believe the hype. Yeah. Good, good, solid advice. Um, thinking about bringing it back home a little bit, what do you see in, cause obviously when you and I chatted, you, you, you know, you shared at the time that you definitely had some Alberta investors, but a lot of the investors were coming from outside of Alberta, even outside of Canada. What are you seeing happening here at home? Cause you're in Calgary, you're based in Calgary, but it sounds like you're playing on very much a global stage with some of these investors to some of the deal flow you're probably seeing. What, what are you seeing in Alberta? What, like, how are things approved since October? Like going back to when we first, when we first chatted, are we on a better path? or were there still some really obvious gaps like how's how, how are we doing at home here yeah no it's exciting times for sure i i think we've been doing incredibly well i mean i was excited to read the headline a couple of weeks ago about the uh, opportunity calgary investment fund there by yes. the ced that's going to be investing into yyc startups so that's pretty exciting they're going to put in i think seven and a half million and a, a vc firm is going to match that so uh, they should be announcing that i believe in july but um yeah, no, I think it's good because the whole valuation craze in the U.S. specifically, it's trickled a bit into Canada, but not so much. So things here okay. are still are still quite quite reasonable and, and I think doing well. But uh, I think it's just going to take time, right? Like we have to get the government funding and all the grants and the programs that are coming out are fantastic. But it's just going to take more time uh, because essentially what we need is we need more tech entrepreneurs to sort of go through the cycle, build, grow a company, exit and then start recycling their profits back into the tech ecosystem, right? And I think a great example of that is um, Pat Lohr, for example, at Panache Ventures. You know, he built a, a tech company, grew it, scaled it, exited, and now he's reinvesting his profits, you know, through his VC firm. And I think as we get more funding announcements and exciting headlines like the the Benevides and the Cements and the, the Athenians of the world, uh, we're going to see those those early tech entrepreneurs starting to come back and invest in the local market here, and it's just it's just a matter of time, right? But it's going to happen. 
And that's, you know, you look at the Valley or you look at Kitchener Waterloo, even Boston. That's the story you always hear that there's enough rounds and enough cycles that have happened. You've got people that are reinvesting or you're at a coffee shop and there's multimillionaires sitting all around you doing those conversations. And that we're just, we're just early on that journey. Nothing like not, nothing more than just like, we've got to, we got to, we got to spin our wheels for a little bit or spin our cycles, I should say. Yeah. And, and from the local, local entrepreneur's perspective, I mean, then you're getting in front of, you know, experienced technology entrepreneurs who get it right. They understand SaaS, they understand, um, you know, instead of, you know, not to, not to shoot down the local, you know, oil and gas guys, but I mean, if it's just not a market that they're familiar with it, that they've invested a lot in, they just, they don't know what to look for. They don't know the questions to ask. Right. So like for myself, for example, with the syndicate, um, just going back to your point from earlier, yeah, it's about 80%, um, U.S. based investors at the moment, but they're all technology people, right? We have people that are, you know, C-suite executives at multi-billion-dollar tech companies to to angels to VCs, but you know, they're all experienced technology investors. And that was sort of my approach: is instead of um, you know, sort of banging on the doors here locally and trying to convince you know the oil and gas and the resource people to change their mindset and perceptions and start investing in technology, which they weren't used to. I said, you know what, let's take an outside in approach. Let's go out and build that global network of technology investors specifically and then start to showcase Alberta companies to them. And, and it'll make it a lot, lot easier for the local companies and it'll bring, you know, much more diversity and, and help raise the awareness of the local ecosystem. So uh, that's been my approach. I mean, it's still early days where we're still less than a year in since the cinch get launched, but uh, it's been exciting so far. And and credit to those Alberta-based investors who have joined the syndicate since day one. I mean, we have some that have invested in all of our deals so far, and they absolutely love it because they're getting, you know, diversification to, to you know, venture-scale deals in the U.S. And, and from the Valley in New York and other markets as well. So uh, they're getting to some great portfolio diversification. And then at the same time, we're getting, you know, these, these you know, uh, high-quality tech investors in the U.S. coming in, and, and, and now we can start showcasing Alberta companies to them. Wins on all sides. Speaking about the Alberta, Alberta investor for the, the types of individuals that are coming into your into your syndicate, are these you know higher net worth individuals, accredited investors that are looking to participate, but obviously don't want to do it on their own. They want to be part of something. Just curious, like who? I've had a few guests really talk about you know the democratization of investing and allowing more people to get access to this pool of opportunity to diversify their own portfolios and not this elitist you you can only play if you've you know, you've got a million dollars to invest or don't call us kind of thing. Sounds like you guys have created a vehicle that also allows people to start playing at a, at, a, at a more get your toe in the in the water kind of level. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, we're seeing. Um, I mean, it's a bit of a mix from you know some family offices and uh, VCs down to to new angels who just want to get involved. I think you know over the last couple of years they've seen the headlines and and the, you know the the Benevides and the Athenians and they want to get in on the party. Right? They're seeing oh look at all these cool tech companies. And all the cool stuff that's going on in tech in, in Calgary and Edmonton and across Alberta. So, um, and then because we've structured it with the syndicate model, I mean, they can come in and start investing for as little as a thousand dollars per deal, right? So we put out the deal memo, they can read through the company, do all their research, and then decide whether or not they want to invest. And if you want to pass, that's fine. If you want to invest, you you pick your number and uh, you go into the deal. But uh, it's just sort of democratizing that process, like you said, and making it more accessible to to a larger number of people. And I think. You know, the more deals you see and the more deals you invest in as an early angel, the more comfortable you'll get, the more experience you get. And then you can start scaling up your check size from there. But uh, it's interesting because we're, we're getting more and more local, like high net worth individuals who, who want to get involved in technology angel investing. And I think the syndicate is just a great way to, to help facilitate that and, 
um, yeah, we've gotten some great feedback so far. That's great. I, I love the accessibility as we live in a world of diversity, you know, equity and inclusion and all that it means when it comes to financial, a lot of people feel excluded from being able to participate on a lot of the stuff and the headlines that you see. So curious, say I'm involved in your syndicate and I decide to, you know, for the sake of your comment, I'm going to put a thousand dollar check. How involved am I? Do I just get my, my quarterly report on how that company's doing? Like just curious, I guess, and, and everybody wants a different level of engagement. But when it comes to learning, if you're going to get educated, you've got to have a certain degree of involvement. It's not just, I sent the check and hopefully I'll get one back in a bunch of years. So I'm just curious what that looks like in terms of allowing those individuals to become more comfortable and like, what's the learning curve look like or the mechanisms to allow me to now be more engaged beyond sending that, you know, thousand or, you know, well, let's pick a better number, a hundred thousand dollar check. Yeah. Yeah, we uh, like we definitely have a mix of, you know, some investors, they just want to be passive. They want to put in their check and, and get their monthly or quarterly updates. But we encourage, you know, anyone who wants to get involved, we share the, the contact information of the founder, for example. And if you can, you know, reach out on an operational level and help, you know, whether your background is in sales or, or HR or IT, recruiting, whatever, um, don't hesitate to, to let us know and we can facilitate an introduction to the founder and, and get more involved in the company. And it's great because a lot of the investors who come in through our syndicate, even some of the smallest ones that put in a thousand bucks, they, they become some of the biggest cheerleaders for these companies, whether it's on social media or referring new customers or, or even making introductions to other investors. So uh, it's, it's just great because, um, you know, the syndicate model really facilitates that and sort of leverages this massive community of people who are there to help and support the company on an operational level. So uh, we tell investors, absolutely, uh, you know, reach out to companies, connect with us. Um, if you got questions, please let us know. I'm happy to jump on a call and explain things. And I think as they get more comfortable and experienced with the process, it's just going to get better from here, right? Well, it's it's the power of, of being a spectator or, or being involved. You know, the second you step out of the stands onto the field, even if you're if you're you're you know warm in the bench, you're now part of something. It's very different. I do appreciate that model of like you don't you know get in, get involved, learn. I I, I don't usually learn much from sitting on the sidelines in anything that I've done in my life. I get involved, and then it gets gets very gets very real. Uh, so do I do I need to be an accredited investor to participate? Because there is there restrictions for me, uh, like just do, even yes. from a securities um, perspective. Yeah, that seems to be coming up as a frequent, like yes, it's put in place for a reason, but it it it, it by its nature keeps a lot of people from participating. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a point of frustration for me because I mean you can go into a, a casino and and you know spend your mortgage <laughs> you payment, can. but you can invest in a company whose products you use on a daily basis. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Uh, but I think, you know, the that's a good, US, that's a, that's example, a good, com- that's a good comparison. That's a good comparison. Yeah. Like if you want to invest in a company and you use their product every day, you're a power user. I think you should be able to throw in, you know, a thousand bucks or a few thousand dollars if you want and, and become a, a supporter and a patron of that company. But the U.S. has has certainly started making some moves and relaxing their accreditation rules. And I think Canada is going to follow suit. But in the meantime, you know, there are some great other options for, for non-accredited investors as well. And I know they're doing some great stuff at Front Funder there in Vancouver, the equity crowdfunding uh, funding platform. Mm-hmm. And it just, you know, there is a way for non-accredited people to get involved. And I think their minimum investment on some of their deals is like $250. And I mean, talk about a great way to activate your customer base or your fan base, especially if you're a consumer facing product. I mean, you can go out and tell all your customers, hey, if you'd like to own a piece of this company for 250 bucks, here you go, go through the crowdfunding campaign. And I mean, they're going to tell all their friends, they're only ever going to use your products. And, you know, it's, it's a great way to build customer loyalty and, and get those people involved who already love the brand and have a relationship with it. 
especially in an era, you know, putting on my marketing hat, where we're looking for more connection, where we're looking to believe in the brands that we buy and we decide more with our wallets than we ever have. We always have, but there's a level of connectivity and people want. And that whole, you know, I, I liked it so much I bought the company. I don't even know what ad campaign that was. I think it was a Gillette. There was some ad campaign from years ago, um, which kind of along those lines. And I love the crowdfunding model as, as maybe a bit of a way of a loophole or a way to kind of get around and still being able to get involved. I think that's, that's powerful. And more and more consumers are looking for that. I, I want to... I want to believe in the razor blades I buy or the, you know, what dot, 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 dot. Obviously it goes well, well beyond that. <clears throat> so interesting. So you, you touched on it, government programs. And I, I think I, I'm really happy to hear what OSIF is doing. Cause I think what was missing was that, Hey, what are they doing on a, on a, on a smaller scale to kind of keep that wheel turning? And I, I think they got a lot of flack because of it. So I was glad to hear that that kind of came into place. I'm sure his brainchild that was, but definitely a supporter and a lot of, I'm hearing a lot of positive buzz around it. When it comes to the government, it may, you know, is there anything that, any, any thoughts on the role of the government? Like, you know, I've heard, hey, they should just get out of the way or no, they should be incentivizing and more tax breaks or more things for startups. Like anything you're seeing that's that, you know, you're really happy that is being done in Alberta. And of course, this is always an opportunity to say, hey, you know what, if we could do that or change that, that would have a positive impact. Yeah, no, there, there's definitely some great, great things with regards to grants. I think the government's doing a great job. I mean, with, you know, IRAP or Alberta Innovates has lots of great grant programs. Um, you know, look at what they're doing at Platform Calgary with the accelerator there and the new building that's going to be open in the fall. I think that's really exciting. But uh, I think the the biggest thing that I would say is bring back that angel tax credit that they they got rid of, um, you know, what was it two or three years ago? I mean, most other provinces have it. I mean, they have it in the U.S., they have it in the U.K., they have it in Australia. So, I mean, we need more incentive to, for people to put money into early stage companies. So I think they could do a little bit more from a policy perspective. But in terms of actually putting money into the market and, and trying to diversify the economy, I think they're doing a good job. Um, it's just going to take more time, like back to our point from earlier of having those tech entrepreneurs realize their exits and then start to recycle their profits back into the market. And, you know, similar to what uh, Chris is doing at Harvest, for example, you know, after Skip the Dishes, he's now, you know, built the Harvest platform and it's just going to take more time for stuff like that. But uh, in the meantime, yeah, bring back the angel tax credit. <laughs> I've, you're not the first one who's, 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 who's mentioned that. Um, are you seeing any, any, are you seeing any inbound traffic from startups or anyone choosing to move to Calgary for, I'm trying to think of what would be, obviously we've got real estate, we've got a few things, but are you seeing any of that? Are we attracting any, any startups or any even established businesses to come to Calgary as a, as a good place to set up shop talking about the competitive, like the world is a small place now, you know, like it's, and it's a competitive place. If you're being incentivized to move to Montreal or to Vancouver, Toronto, maybe you'd overlook Calgary when you, when, when you, when mm -hmm. we wish you shouldn't. Yeah, and um, I, I I don't know specifically of any companies that have have purposely chosen to to move to Calgary. Um, I think maybe there was there was a recent headline that I might have heard, but um, I, I know that especially since COVID, uh, with everything being remote now, we're seeing a lot more companies hire hire employees who are in Calgary, and I think it's great because you know you don't have to to pay the same high level of salaries. It's a great great uh, place to live, high quality of living. So we're seeing. Um, a lot of tech talent in the area stay in the area, which is great. And I think we're still what uh, Edmonton or Alberta is ranked uh, still one of the top regions in the world for AI and ML development. So um, that's really exciting times. But um, yeah, I think it's just, uh, you know, if we if we can keep this whole remote work sort of thing and and people realize they don't have to be in Silicon Valley to, to, to launch their company. Um, I think, yeah, we could start to see companies moving here, provided we get the, the proper tax policies and everything in place. And you know, um, you know, government grant programs and, and support from that regard. But 
um, yeah, no, it's exciting. We, we do have a very high concentration of tech talent here. So um, I think it's just a matter of time before more companies decide to, hey, let's put a headquarters in Calgary because we have such a giant pool of diverse tech talent to draw from. So um, that's yeah. great to hear because money and people are two two of the key ingredients for the for the wheel, right? <laughs> for the grist grist for the mill. Curious, just your own point of view. Uh, you know, it's not the future of work anymore; it's now. Uh, with the companies like the six deals you did, are these companies that have embraced the remote work kind of teams from anywhere? What what are you seeing kind of in the startup community? Because there's like you can't you can't throw a stick right or a stone right now without hitting an article on what the future of work is going to be. Which I think we think it's it's upon us. It's not something that's coming. I think I think it's here. But curious what trends you're seeing in the in the in the tech in that ecosystem. Is it that remote and that's just the way it's going to be? Because they were often like that before. <laughs> Yeah, um, I think, you know, for the companies that we look at, because they're still pretty early stage and they have small teams, usually, you know, sub 10 people, it's they can often be in the same city. Like usually it's two co-founders that went to school together or they built a previous company together. Um, but, yeah, no, we're seeing like all, all the companies that we've worked with so far, uh, they're all still working remotely. Um, I think there is something to be said for getting everybody in the room and, you know, throwing things together on the whiteboard and brainstorming in real time. And that's a process that is really hard to replicate virtually on Zoom. But uh, I think moving forward, we're definitely going to see sort of a hybrid model. I don't think it's going to go back to 100 percent in office. I don't think it's going to stay 100 percent remote. I think people will probably come in, you know, two to three days a week. And from the, the startup's perspective, you know, they're probably going to, you know, instead of renting that expensive office space, they might just go with a, like a co-working space and 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 rent a, a room or an office uh, one or two days a week and go in and just have everybody be able to be together and, and brainstorm together. So I think that's where the trend is going. But uh, it, it's exciting, too, because some of the, the companies that we worked with, they have for example, developers overseas, whether it's in, in Latin America or, or overseas in Europe or, or India. And you can really ramp up your development cycles because you have sort of the North American dev team working on things here during the day, and then they hand off to, to the dev team overseas. And basically, people are working 24 hours. So it's exciting times. And obviously, you know, the, the, the salaries in those countries are a lot less and, and, and easier to pay for for startups so that we're seeing their runways extend and they're not nearly burning as much cash. So uh, I think it's exciting from that regard, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes, but I'm definitely anticipating some type of hybrid model moving forward. Yeah, I think so. I think it's interesting where, you know, early days it was, you know, full work remote. And now you, I've heard some, I've seen some heavy handed messaging around, you better be back in the office by the fall or hell to pay. And I think it's, I think it's kind of interesting, but I, I really agree with what you said. Like it always just becomes more variety. You know what I mean? Like I, the old joke that, Radio didn't replace newspaper. Newspaper, TV didn't replace radio. It just made it more diversified. Obviously, digital has taken a big swipe out of all of it. But in reality, it just makes it more, there's just more options. And I think that everyone's got their own individual formula for success. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited for it going forward. But I just like all the rhetoric now. And you're seeing, you're seeing very different positions being taken and stakes being put in the ground. It's interesting. <laughs> Yeah. And it comes down to the individual too, right? I mean, each employee is different and they might work better at home in more of a quiet environment and other people might work better, you know, in the office with a team. So I think, uh, I think managers are going to have to look at more at the individual level of each person on their team and figure out how that person works best and then try and give them the opportunity in order to, to get the most out of them. Right. No, I agree. I, a lot of my introvert friends are just are just fine with being at home and not having to share the office with the, the louder ones amongst us. <laughs> myself, yeah, included. yeah. No, I, I'm the same way. You know, I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm in a bit of an introvert myself. So I, I the whole you know remote remote work work from home thing has has really not been that bad for me. In fact, 
I've, I've found myself, uh, I've had more opportunities working remotely because I can connect with people all over the world and build that global network. So it's been, it's been good. Yeah, I, I choose to, you know, what, what can we take out of this pandemic and what can we move forward? I think it's opened a lot of doors and created the, you know, it's, it's made the world even smaller. You know, it was a path we were already on. It's just accelerated it when it comes to hearing you, you know, pulling the amount, the amount of growth you've had in your investor pool, the exposure you have to deals. Like, it sounds like it's done nothing, like, but good for you guys, considering, you know, you started right in the heart of it. And eight months later, it sounds like things are like, it certainly sounds like it's, it's very successful and moving in a positive direction because you've got access to such a global uh, deal flow as well as investors. It's I'm really happy to hear about your success. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, it's been an exciting ride so far. Um, we'll, we'll see where the, the year closes out and yeah, just keep growing uh, onwards and upwards from here, right? Well, and you're, and you're based here in Alberta, which uh, to me that uh, we, we need more, we need as many of those stories, like you said, or many, as many cycles as we can work through to just kind of grow that market and create a little more of that critical mass. Matt, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you? Obviously you've got a, I've been on your website. You guys have a great website. What's uh, is there any way, is good way someone wants to reach out to you direct? Yeah, definitely connect with me on LinkedIn. Shoot me a message. Uh, I'm always on the LinkedIn platform. That's one of our, our, our biggest channels there just to connect with new companies and, and see new opportunities. So LinkedIn and uh, yeah, visit the website if you're a, if you're a founder and you want to you know get your company in front of us, get on our radar. Just click the apply button, and then for investors as well, if you're interested to learn more about the syndicate and join, uh, there's more information there as well. Matt, thanks for your time again. Enjoyed uh, having you come back on, and uh, man, well, okay, I'll see you eight months from now, and I uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see the same <laughs> the same level of growth eight months from now. That you guys have been able to pull off. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Hey, yeah. Fingers crossed. Uh, yeah. I th- thanks again for having me on. It's, it's always a pleasure. Oh, absolutely. My, a- a- anytime. Thanks, Matt.